Hello and welcome. My name's Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to Talking About Immersive Theatre Podcast or Tate, that's T-A-I-T, for short. This is the third episode of the instalments from the first creative huddle with IEN, which was recorded on the 20th of February at the Bridwell Theatre in London. And this part of the evening is Rob Morgan's discussion. So I'm just going to let you access the content and I'm going to stop talking now. My name is Robert Morgan. I am a writer and an experienced designer and a digital dramaturge, whatever that is. I started in the games industry <clears throat> and I've written and I've narrative designed a fair number of VR games, including the 2019 VR Awards Game of the Year. I've also worked in immersive theatre for a bit. I was digital dramaturge on Dream Think Speaks show last year, and I'm doing that same role for the National Theatre of Malta later in the summer. But I've always been particularly interested in augmented reality. Back in the BPG era, that's before Pokemon Go, I started a studio, Playlines, to make location-based layers of AR theatre. And more and more, my own work is about narrative design and dramaturgy for location-based technology. And because I'm interested in how we can use small amounts of digital narrative to just season people's ordinary experiences, to change and recontextualize their relationships to the people and the places around them. Basically, what are the poetics? Come on, I'm going to struggle with my punchlines, I can tell. <laughs> What are the poetics of Pokemon Go? It's the sort of question I like to ask. I'm a visiting fellow at King's College, researching just that, and I'm currently writing a book on it. And in all these formats, what I'm drawn to is that typically, as both our other speakers have talked about, the player and the protagonist is usually the same person. In AR, every player is the protagonist of their story, which means that they are simultaneously your audience, but also the audience's viewpoint into the story and the main character. So how is all of this relevant to immersive theatre and the wider immersive sector? Let's get into it. So I want to start with a question because I want you to be thinking about context, specifically social context. I want you to be thinking about self-consciousness. And luckily, getting you to think about self-consciousness is as easy as just making you self-conscious. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> Sorry, Doug. <laughs> Look, just try to act normal. So here's the question. When is an audience member too self-conscious to get immersed? And because I want you to be self-conscious thinking about this, to be alert to social context in this moment, I want one word answers. Yeah. Oh no, because I don't want you to be able to get bogged down in your own thoughts and let your thinking run on and cover your self-consciousness because I could open my mouth and start waffling on this question and I would feel less and less self-conscious as I did it because I'm exactly the sort of wanker who stands up here and pontificates about this stuff in the first place. It's fine, it's fine. Here, we're all wankers together. <laughs> But I want you to be self-conscious about your answer, about what it might say about you, about what others in the room might think about you. So one word answers it is. Does anybody have an answer for this question? You, sir. Exposure. Exposure. When is an audience too self-conscious to get immersed? Thank you, Dan. Exposure. Anybody else? You, sir. Speaking. Speaking. 
possibly when they're asked to speak. It's tricky. It's a difficult question. Maybe an easier framing of the question. Can an audience member be too self-conscious to get immersed? One word answers. Yes. See, the thing is, as some of you may already suspect, I think the answer to this question is no. In this business, we tend to think of the audience member being self-conscious as the moment that their immersion has broken. Academic writing about immersive experiences, whether it's theatre or virtual reality or whatever, tends to talk about immersion in terms of being submerged or enclosed in the story, like we become part of the story for the duration in a way that's all-consuming, and then we emerge on the other side, changed. But I think that when we view the player's self-consciousness as the opposite of their immersion, when we view those two things as fighting or pulling away from each other, we're missing an opportunity to play with the player as their whole authentic selves. And when I'm talking about self-consciousness, I'm not talking about maybe when you pluck an audience member out of the crowd and you give them a moment. I'm talking about what's happening inside every audience member's head a little bit all the time, no matter how good your show is, the boring stuff. Like when a part of their brain is thinking about how much their feet hurt, or is worried about climate change, or worried that they left the oven on, or is concerned that they might be asked to perform or be embarrassed. Real, everyday self-consciousness. It's not the enemy. Now, like I say, I've done a lot of work in VR, and I work with a lot of creators coming from other media who come to VR seeing it as the ultimate in immersion, where supposedly, in some ways, the technology kind of does the immersing for you because the player's enclosed completely in the virtualized environment, right? But I'm here to tell you that effective, emotionally engaging VR is not where you are overwriting the player's identity or overcoming their self-consciousness. You're working with it. You are collaborating with it. Because willing suspension of disbelief is still a thing. And it is never a complete overwhelming submergence. In the same way that though, of course, you're all raptly hanging on my every word, right? You are also partly conscious of how you're sitting in a room full of your peers and you're conscious of where the bar is and you're conscious that the chair you're sitting in is probably a bit less comfortable than you thought it was going to be when you first sat down because I've rambled on about this for long enough. Immersive experiences, they ask the player to coexist in two narrative realities, to walk with one foot in real reality, the hard layer, and one foot in some other realm. It's like you're asking your players to walk along two airport travelators running in parallel, one foot on either side, one foot in each dimension. When the travelators work together, when the two narratives are pulling in the same direction, you can smoothly speed your player along. They're engaged. If the two travelators start going in different directions, if the two realities start contradicting each other, it's a jarring moment and the audience is pulled in two directions. That's what's happening when there's a dissonance. In games, we call this a ludonarrative dissonance, a contradiction between what they know and what they see, for example. But imagine if one travelator keeps going and one just suddenly stops. Or worse, imagine if you ask someone to hop one-legged along one travelator and completely ignore the other. It's just as disruptive to the user's experience 
And I think that is what's happening when we, as immersive creators, see our role as trying to chase down and eradicate any possibility of self-consciousness from the audience's experience. Owen talked about a wasted resource, and that's how I feel about this, because just as you have a live actor standing there, you also have a live audience member, a player, and their self-consciousness is a big part of how they experience reality. It's a big part of what makes their experience feel authentic. And so when we ask them to ignore that big portion, the worst, the reality they spend the most time in, I think we're too prone to see the moment that the player got immersed as a moment when we've succeeded in distracting them or misdirecting them or convincing them that what we're showing them is real. When they've supposedly forgotten themselves and they've become a character in our story, because really what we're doing is excluding elements of the player from the story, taking parts of them and cordoning them off and saying, no, that's not part of it. We're actually asking them to exclude elements of themselves from the version of themselves which exists in the story. But those boring, everyday, sore-footed elements of themselves are part of what makes their experience feel real. One of the things that makes a character in any story feel authentic and relatable is that they have ordinary, distracting self-awareness about themselves and the mundanities of existence, even in the middle of a romance or an adventure. And that rule of storytelling is even more true when you're trying to get the player to be a character in your story. Otherwise, I think we end up making immersion into some standard and then demanding that audiences live up to it. Often that means leaving some audience members feeling that maybe because they get distracted easily or are worried about being embarrassed or just fail to be submerged, that somehow they failed the experience when often it's the experience that failed them. So basically, I want to encourage you to view XR, immersive technology, as a way to reach out and play with the player together in a world you're building together, but not to view immersive technology as a way to reliably blot out parts of the player's identity so they fit better into your idea of what a hero looks like. Because that's not what immersion is. That's not how play actually works. It's make-believe. Or let's pretend, as we call it in the North, where I grew up, or as I called it, I'll pretend, while the other lads, <laughs> while the other lads played football. So what does this mean for the wider immersive sector? I wanted to share three quick provocations, actually specifically for the moment of onboarding, which I think reflect this idea, ways to get your players' own self-consciousness on your side, to get their self-consciousness to take place within the bubble of the story. So it's actually building their in-story identity as a self-conscious person. So it's driving their immersion. Firstly, focus on augmenting the player not the environment. In AR, really any immersive technology, the most important reality you're augmenting is the player themselves. They're your canvas and your paint. Their willing engagement, even if it's not all consuming, is far more significant to their experience than any amount of set dressing you may be able to afford. Getting them to tell themselves a story about their role in what's going on, even if it's a small role, is much more cost-effective than trying to download a load of exposition to them. 
This means that no matter when or where your onboarding happens, remember that the story starts inside the player. The title of this talk is So You're Secretly a Dragon, because that was the punchline of my previous talk at IEN. It's an example I give a lot when I'm teaching or consulting, because augmented reality is no good at exposition. In my opinion, it's like immersive theatre in that respect. Augmented reality is no good at trying to convince the player you are in a dragon's cave. Stick with VR for that stuff if you must. But augmented reality is brilliant at leaning into the player and whispering, you are secretly a dragon. And then co-constructing with them in a playful way how that recontextualizes their everyday experience of walking down the street. Finally, in the nicest possible way, consider <laughs> kidnapping instead of onboarding the player. And what I mean by this is, however big your story is, allow your players to be an every person within it. Because being an every person is a much bigger deal than being a non-entity. Is not really there. North by Northwest, 1959, one of my favorite films, an instant classic, a thriller and a parody of thrillers, a very self-aware film. It's thrilling not because it has a powerful, memorably heroic Bond-like protagonist, because it doesn't. Roger Thornhill is a Manhattan advertising executive who's on his way to the theater when due to a case of mistaken identity, he's kidnapped and thrown into a spy story. He's bundled onto the story train and it is leaving the station. And he complains the whole time. He's uncomfortable, his feet hurt. Even in the midst of life and death stakes, he's worried about the fact that he stood up his date and he's been embarrassed in front of his mother. Just because a bunch of spies think he's a spy like them and those mundane details make him relatable. It makes it compelling to watch him try to handle the dangers and the cliches of a spy story. And he's well aware of those cliches, just as your audiences will be. And actually, it turns out that the heroic spy that his enemies have mistaken him for, spoilers, never existed in the first place. But all of this means that when, at the climax of the story, he decides to actually genuinely risk his life to do the right thing, to edge vertiginously around the ledge of Mount Rushmore to save Eva Marie Saint, it's a much more significant thing because we know he's no hero. We've been inside his every person perspective. So we understand how big a jump that was and how far he has to fall. Now, as I said, I'm just the sort of wanker who will shamelessly go on about this stuff. So it's possible that my perspective on self-consciousness is somewhat skewed, but we are multi-dimensional creatures. We are each able to walk in multiple dimensions of experience simultaneously, non-contradictorily. We all walk down the street lost in a reverie and we still remember to look both ways before we cross the road. We can coexist in real and imagined worlds simultaneously and we actually do it all the time. We do contain multitudes and most of those multitudes are versions of us. And that includes versions with sore feet or social anxiety. And believe me, self-consciousness doesn't go away even when you are on a hair-raising adventure. Self-consciousness is our ordinary background experience of reality. So it is a resource you have to help make your audience's experiences feel more real. You don't have to make your players the hero of the story, 
Most immersive experiences are too big and complex for that, but players are more than capable of being their own kind of heroes on their own terms within the constraints you decide if you just give them the tools to imagine so. Now, hopefully, you don't even have to agree with me for those three provocations to be useful. That's why I'm sharing them, because I hope they'll be helpful without you having to agree with me. If you disagree, come and grab me and I'll buy you a drink while you tell me all about it. And if you want to creatively quibble, best of all, if you go out there and make work that proves me wrong, especially if you're at the start of your career, nothing would make me happier. Because that's how we're going to move this sector forward artistically. And that's where I want to leave it. Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that final instalment of individual speakers from the collaboration between Tate and the Immersive Experience Network. Um, Rob Morgan speaking there, absolutely brilliant insights that I think are really useful and really practical to be able to apply those within the context of different kinds of work. So thank you very much, Rob. That was brilliant. So the next and final instalment for now that will be coming your way is the panel discussion that was recorded between all of the speakers from the last three episodes. So that's Owen, Chloe and Rob, moderated by Sheena Patel, who's also one of the founding members of the Immersive Experience Network. Um, and also, you'll be able to hear the questions that they've responded to, which I think will be really, really useful too. So that content is heading your way very, very shortly. So I hope you enjoy that as well. Until then, bye-bye.